Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith and review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please welcome back Father William. Mentioning uh, Mark Wench, he's, um, I got a notice today that his wife's aunt died leaving a 10-year-old child, um, um, single mother, and so um, uh, we might remember uh, her aunt in our prayers. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty God, tomorrow we celebrate the feast of the transfiguration of your Son, our Lord, revealed to us in glory on Mount Tabor, testified to by Moses and Elijah, symbols of the law and the prophets. May we always find all our searchings, all our answers in Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, the last talk on monasticism, um, and I'm conscious that uh, it's the last talk and it's only scratching the surface, so there we are. Earlier this week, on Monday, August the 3rd, the Latin Church kept an optional memorial of St. Eusebius of Vercelli. I don't know whether any of you were at Mass on Monday and whether they kept the feast of St. Eusebius of Vercelli. It's a town in the Piedmont region in northwestern Italy. He lived from 283 to 371, and along with St. Athanasius, he defended the divinity of Christ against the Arian heresy. We recall that when the Emperor Constantine made Christianity the state religion, Christians breathed a great sigh of relief. Many thought that this would be the end of bloodshed and martyrdom. But it was all too short a time until they were facing persecution once more from others who claimed to be Christian. As we saw previously, many people became Christians so that they could have political or social advancement. They were, there were among such as these who became Christian without truly understanding it, those who misunderstood the faith. Under such circumstances, heresy would find fertile ground. One of the most powerful heresies was Arianism, which claimed that Jesus was not God, just a very good man with nice things to say, but not God. It seems it's a heresy which has never fully died out. The Arians were powerful people. They included nobles and generals and even emperors. They commanded armies and senates. And so true Christianity was in danger of being stamped out second time. Eusebius had learned how to stand as a Christian from his father, who died as a martyr in Sardinia. After his father's death, he grew up in Rome, where he was ordained to the ministry of lector. Now, we have people who read, you probably all, so many of you read in your parish church, but in those days, the reader was one of the few who could read, and he was also the catechist. And so there was a real, um, there's a real role of the, re the lector, that he, he not only proclaimed scripture in church as one of the people who could, but also taught scripture and explained it to others. When the people of Vercelli saw how well he served their church as a lector, they had no doubt in choosing him as their bishop. Um, those were in the times when bishops were elected by the people and the clergy. And so from being lector, he goes right up to bishop, you know, at, at the acclaim of the local people. What's, uh, his, this, the study of St. Eusebius is very interesting on a number of levels, especially his involvement in fighting Arianism. But what we're of in, interested in is that according to the testimony of St. Ambrose, um, he was the first bishop in the Latin Western Church who united monastic life with clerical life. And so at Vercelli, he had a monastery, but the monks were all priests. 
Now remember we said last time there was no necessary connection between priests and monks whatsoever. But St. Eusebius decides that at the cathedral he'll have a monastery which will be priests. And he led the, the clergy of his city in a common life modeled upon that of the Eastern Cenobites, the ones who lived in common, like the Basilian monks of the East. For this reason, the later orders in the Western Church called Canons Regular, following the rule of St. Augustine, honor Eusebius along with Augustine as a founder of that canonical way of life, of priest-monks. We note that St. Eusebius was actually contemporaneous with St. Anthony, with Pacomius, and with Basil. So he lives in northern Italy, and they're all in Syria and Egypt and so on. Um, but he brings the idea of monk and priest together in the north of Italy. Kind of interesting. St. Augustine now lived from November the 13th, 354, till August the 28th, 430. St. Pacomius had died six years before he was born. St. Anthony died when he was two years old. So we kind of see where Augustine is coming. St. Basil died when he was 25 years old. So they're kind of all around the same time. He's a bit younger than them. Augustine became Bishop of Hippo, which was then a Roman colony, Roman territory in modern-day Algeria in North Africa. So if you go actually to Algeria, you can find the place that was Hippo and you'll find their memorials to St. Augustine. He is one of the best-known saints of the church, especially for his voluminous contributions to philosophy and theology. Even Martin Luther and John Calvin liked him, though they misunderstood his teaching and used it to their own purposes. As the Roman Empire in the West was starting to disintegrate, and when St. Augustine lay dying in the city of Hippo, he could hear the vandals attacking the city. You know, so literally, and the vandals were called vandals because they destroyed everything in the path. And that's where we get modern vandals from because they're like their ancient predecessors. Um, so as the, the empire in the West was starting to disintegrate, Augustine developed the idea that the church was a spiritual city of God. And he wrote that in a book of the same name, The City of God. Distinct from the material earthly city, his thought profoundly influenced the whole medieval worldview. Augustine's city of God closely identified with the church, the community that worshipped God. Well, that's mature development of Augustine's thought. He was born of a pagan father named Patricius and a Christian mother named Monica. Augustine's family name, Aurelius, suggests that his father's ancestors were given full Roman citizenship by the Edict of Caracalla in 212. Augustine's family had been Roman from a legal standpoint, at least, for at least a century by the time he was born. While the townspeople of Thagaste were thoroughly Romanized citizens, citizens, they spoke Latin and viewed themselves as Romans there in North Africa, the inhabitants of this territory may be biologically linked to the North Africans who would be later called Berbers. Sometimes St. Monica is depicted with the dark skin of an African. In the LA Cathedral, which one of the, there's not a lot of things to recommend it, but one of the things is the saints going on pilgrimage towards the, the sanctuary, which is heaven, of course. And you've got St. Monica, who is dark, and Augustine, who's clearly a, a little mixed race because of his Patricius, his dad, and then Monica, his mother. So it's a very, I, I quite like that, and he's dressed as a bishop in the right kind of gear for the time. From the age of 11, Augustine was given a serious education. He was sent to a school at Medaris, a city about 19 miles south of Tagaste, noted for its pagan ways and pagan culture. Augustine was rarely alone. As a schoolboy, he was associated with a group of evosores, literally wreckers. These were his pals. Although he deplored their destruction of property, um, as he reflects back in his confessions, he says he enjoyed their company. So, at Madaris, he became familiar with Latin literature, 
as well as pagan beliefs and practices. In the years 369 and 70, he remained at home. And during that period, he read Cicero's dialogue, Hortentius, now lost, which he described as leaving a lasting impression on him and sparking his interest in philosophy. At the age of 17, he went to Carthage to continue his education in rhetoric. His mother, Monica, was a devout Christian, but his father, Patricius, was a pagan. Augustine was raised with a kind of Christian influence, but without baptism. He would have to come to that as an adult. So that was how he was raised. He left the influence of the church to join the Manichaean sect, much to the despair of his mother. As a youth, Augustine lived a hedonistic lifestyle for a time, associating with young men who boasted of their experience with the opposite sex and urged the inexperienced boys like Augustine to seek out experiences with women or at least to make up stories about experiences <laughs> in order to gain acceptance and avoid ridicule. At the age of 17, he developed an affair with a young woman of lower caste in Carthage. She was his lover for over 13 years and gave birth to his son, whom he called Ardeodatus, which is kind of like tongue-in-cheek because the name means given by God. He taught both grammar and rhetoric over a period of 11 years. In 383, he moved to Rome, disappointed by the unruly behavior of the students in Carthage. He thought the Roman students would be much more serious. However, when it came time to pay their tuition, they simply fled the city. Augustine, through the influence of some of his Manichaean friends, was offered a position as professor of rhetoric in the imperial court at Milan late in 384. He had the most visible academic position in the Latin world at the age of 30. However, Augustine was changing within. The Manichaean ideas lost their credibility for him. His studies in Neoplatonism, in which the transcendent one and the ascent of the soul to the transcendent one, as well as his mother's constant urgings to reconsider Christianity, started to bring about change within him. In keeping with his gregarious temperament, he didn't like to be alone, he always liked the company of others, Augustine proposed at Milan in 386 to live in common with ten friends. All were friends, and from their number, two individuals would be elected each year to provide for the needs of the others, so that the rest could live a peaceful way of life away from the crowds, as we read in his Confessions. Here there was a total sharing of goods, a common fund, and they would be a single household. Wives were welcome, as well as men with prospects for future marriage. Of course, the plan didn't work out, as can be imagined, and was scrapped. In Milan, Augustine also came under the influence of the bishop St. Ambrose. Ambrose was a master of rhetoric, like himself, but older and more experienced. And when he listened to Ambrose preach, because his mother would say, come and hear the Bishop Ambrose. So he would go to church and listen to the bishop preach. He felt more and more drawn towards Christianity. But at this time, his moral life was awry still, and something more was needed to turn him around. Intellectually, he'd really come to accept the faith. But morally, he was not yet ready. An important point in Augustine's conversion dates from August 386, when he was 32 years of age. Augustine and his great friend St. Alepius had a visit from an African compatriot named Pontitianus, who was an influential leader at the imperial court. Pontitianus began leafing through a book on the table when he was visiting there, and to his astonishment, in this book in Augustine's place was the Epistles of St. Paul. And being a Christian, he congratulated Augustine on a good choice of reading. Soon he steered the conversation onto the subject of the Egyptian hermit, Antony, who was already about 30 years dead at the time. Antony was held in wonder and much esteem by Christians, and stories about Antony had come to the West. Pontitianus recounted the life of St. Anthony and was surprised that Augustine and Alepius knew nothing about Antony at all. 
He also, also told them about the Anchorites, the, the hermits, and the Cenobitic monks living in the Egyptian desert regions, the solo monks and the community monks. And to their amazement said that the Bishop Ambrose had in fact established a monastery just outside the city walls of Milan. He also described an event which had taken place some years before. He was, talk was taking a walk in the gardens surrounding the town walls with three friends who were also in the emperor's service. Two of them chanced to enter a monk's dwelling and they found an account of Antony's life. One of them began to read it and he was so swept along by what he read that in that spot he renounced all his worldly plans, the emperor's friendship and the marriage he was proposing and he convinced his friend to do the same. They wanted to dedicate themselves wholly to the service of God. When Pontitianus and his companion had searched for them for a long time, they found them both in the monk's hut. That they, and they said that they had come to an irrevocable decision. On that very day, their way of life was changed. So Augustine was listening to this. And the story affected him profoundly. He was seized by a longing to do what these uneducated men had done. In the turmoil of his mind between holding on to his old way of life and taking on the new way, he went out with St. Alepius into the garden. And there they both heard a voice like that of a little child that said, Tole lege, take up and read. So Augustine opened the words of St. Paul. Just He opened the book that already had been seen inside. And this is what he read, just like St. Anthony, remember, heard in the gospel, go sell all you have, give to the poor. Now Augustine reads, not in rioting and in drunkenness, not in debauchery and wantonness, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the concupiscence of your flesh. Chapter 13, verses 13, 14 of Romans. And so illumination and peace came upon him at that moment. And he wrote in the Confessions, I had no need to read any further. He had no troubles with the faith. It was with morality that he struggled. Now inspired by his search for wisdom, by the story of St. Anthony, by the words of St. Paul, he came to realize that for him becoming a Christian would mean seeking after wisdom and perfection in complete self-denial. In the Confessions, God had given him far more than his mother had dared ask for him in the long years of her weeping and her prayers. God had so converted him that he never again sought a wife or any other ambition this world has to offer. Soon after, a new experience of community life evolved, taking advantage of the autumn holidays and resigning his teaching position, Augustine went to a country estate at nearby city called Cassiciacum, about 47 miles from Milan. There he devoted himself to the pursuit of true philosophy, which for him was now inseparable from Christian belief. So the two things went absolutely together. He went there with his mother Monica, with his son Adeodatus, his brother Navigius, two wards from Tegest, Licentius and Tyregatius, and two cousins and a small core of pupils for whom Augustine still held himself responsible. His friend St. Alepius was also there. There, seven months were spent in Cassiciacum in preparation for baptism because this country estate had graciously been put at his disposal by his friend Varicundus. Augustine later described the ideal serenity of this existence, which had been enlivened by the passion for truth. In the rural delight of Cassiciacum, this close-knit group formed a temporary live-in community for Augustine. Here was the delight of kindred spirits with time to pray, reflect, and engage in discussion. Apparently, in, in many of the discussions they had, which were about philosophy and various writers and so on, St. Monica would get involved and sum the whole thing up just in a nutshell. And it amazed the young scholars that this, you know, grandma, you know, would, would get it right. The whole, pit, the whole party returned from Cassiciacum to Milan before Easter of the year 387, 
along with Alepius, his friend, and Adeodatus, his son, Augustine was baptized on the night of Holy Saturday, 23rd, 24th of April, 387, by St. Ambrose, from whose preaching he had learned so much. Augustine could have accepted baptism and then married, continuing his teaching position and raise a family. As we know, the examples that he wrote about as having impressed him while he thought about approaching baptism were a much more vigorous and self-sacrificing style of Christian living. In the past, Augustine had prayed for chastity, but part of him was not ready for it, and he would add the words, Lord, give me chastity, but not yet. Um, In his mind, he was ready now to dedicate himself completely to God, and his uncontrolled emotions still opposed this decision. Augustine now had some considerable remorse about the excess and sexual immorality of his earlier years. Within a three-year period, Augustine lost his friend and professional colleague, Varicundus. He lost his mother, St. Monica, his dear friend, Mabridius, and finally, Aodatus, his son, all died of natural causes. He returned home to North Africa in August 388. Immediately upon arriving there, he wished to carry out his ideal of a perfect life. He began by selling all his goods and giving the proceeds to the poor. He withdrew to his estate which was already severely alienated. Late in the year 388, Evodius, Alepius, and Severus, who came with him from Italy, joined Augustine and Aodatus, who had not yet died, and six more men came to live with them, among them Augustine's future biographer, Posidius. Here in his native Tagaste, he assembled a monastic life. In his life of Augustine, Posidius wrote, having laid aside all worldly cares, He lived there with his disciples for nearly three years in fasting, prayer, and good works, meditating day and night the law of the Lord and living entirely for God. He instructed those present and the absent by word and writing according to the light he received from God. Manual work was an important part of the community's regime. The community members were not slow in posing questions to Augustine on a great variety of topics. He answered them from the store of his vast knowledge. These questions, together with the responses by Augustine, were later collated by Augustine and published as his work entitled 83 Questions. In the year 389, Augustine went to Hippo to see a friend who was interested in setting up a similar community to his lay community um, back in Tagaste. Augustine had arrived in the town of Hippo um, to meet his friend. Thirty-five years afterwards, he recounted in his sermon 355 how greatly this visit changed his life. I was grabbed, he explained. Augustine did not exaggerate. He was pressed into becoming a priest. It had not been his intention to become a priest. Indeed, he had been avoiding it because he wished to lead a private life in his community of lay people at the Geist. When he was at Mass in Hippo, The aged Bishop Valerius saw Augustine in the congregation. In his sermon, Valerius was describing the urgent need of the local Catholic minority, which is surrounded by sects such as the Donatists. And then without warning, Valerius added, and this is quoting from the Confessions, this congregation is in need of more priests, and I believe that the calling of Augustine to the altar would be to the honor of God. Willing hands propelled Augustine forward, And the bishop and the congregation prevailed upon Augustine to say yes. The only condition that Augustine sought and was granted was that he be allowed time for study and preparation beforehand. Although not wanting to give up his life of study and prayer as a layperson in a community, Augustine nevertheless agreed to the request of the people. In a sermon much later, Augustine said to his people, quote, A slave may not contradict his lord. I came to this city to see a friend whom I thought I might gain for God, that he might live with us in our community at Thagaste. I felt secure, for the place already had a bishop. I was grabbed. I was made a priest, and from there I became your bishop. End of quote. The community with Augustine at Thagaste came to an end soon after he was called to service in Hippo as a priest in 391. In one sense, 
that community was the parent of his later attitude to the somewhat different monastery he founded in Hippo when he became a priest and later a bishop. In his Life of Augustine, Posidius described the community life of Augustine. He wrote, Augustine, in his new dignity, was obliged to live in the bishop's house, both on account of hospitality and for the exercise of his episcopal duties. But he still engaged all the priests, deacons and subdeacons that lived with him to renounce all property and to engage themselves to embrace the rule that he had established there. Indeed, he would not admit any to the priesthood who would not bind themselves to the same manner of life. Herein, he was imitated by several other bishops. End of quote. Basidius tells us that the clothing and furniture permitted by Augustine was modest but decent, not slovenly. No silver was used in his house except spoons. His dishes were of earth, wood, or marble. He explained, quote, Augustine exercised hospitality, but his table was frugal. Besides herbs and pulse, some meat was served up for strangers and the sick. Wine was available, but the quantity was regulated, and no guest was ever allowed to exceed it. At table, he loved rather reading or literary conferences than secular conversation. And to warn his guests to shun detraction, he placed the following verse written upon his table. Quote, This board allows no vile detractor place, whose tongue shall charge the absent with disgrace. Augustine also founded a community of religious women in Hippo. His only sister was the first abbess there. Augustine lived a communal life with his clergy, who bound themselves to observe religious poverty. His demanding responsibilities as a bishop and an author, much in demand, never induced him to abandon his monastic ideal. Until the end of his long life, he faithfully remained a, a member of the community, the religious community. St. Augustine's understanding of community life he had set up may be seen in many of his writings, but very clearly in his commentary on Psalm 132. And let me read this short psalm. How good and how pleasant it is when brothers live in unity. It is like precious oil upon the head, running down upon the beard, running down upon Aaron's beard, upon the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the heights of Zion, for there the Lord gives his blessing, life forever. Commenting on the first verse of the psalm about brothers living in unity, brothers living as one, St. Augustine says that living as one comes from the Greek word monos, meaning one. And so that's where the word in Latin for monk, monarchos, comes from. Uh, monarchus in Latin. So um, the word monk comes from the word one. But Augustine says, for those who live together in such a way as to make one person, so that they really possess, as scripture says, one heart and one soul. Many bodies, but not many souls. Many bodies, but not many hearts. He does this in his commentary, then speaks of the oil flowing down from the heights of Zion. And he says, well, what is the oil? He goes, oil is the Holy Spirit, because of unction, holy unction, holy anointing. And it's poured on the head, the mountain of Zion. But the precious oil first falls upon the head. And what is the head? Well, the head is Christ. So the Holy Spirit given through Christ our Lord. And then it runs down upon the beard. And he says, well, what's the beard? And he goes, that's a symbol of mature manhood. And so he speaks of those like St. Stephen, the first martyr, who bore persecution faithfully. So the unction of the Holy Spirit flows through the head Christ, through the saints, and then onto the garment, which is the body of Christ, the church. But then he makes, remember that special mention of the collar of the robe. The oil flows from the head, from the beard, onto the robe, but upon the collar of the robe. And he goes, well, what's the collar or the hem of the robe? Well, he goes, that's the thing that gives the robe shape. And he says, well, what is it that gives the church shape? And he says, the holy clerics and the ascetics. So he sees his monks as living as one, and that's the meaning of monk for him, to live as one in the church, for the church, to build up the body of Christ. And so Augustine's monasticism is here very clearly ecclesial or church-centered. 
Now, I'm not saying that Basil's wasn't or Pacomius wasn't or that Benedict's will not be in a certain indirect sense. But Augustine has very clearly that monks are those who live as one for the sake of the church to give it character and colour and its shape, if you like. We see by all this that Augustine's understanding of monasticism is clearly ecclesial. Monks are very much part of the church and its life. And the monk who is a priest is in a position to serve the church and her life very effectively. At this point, we must stop with St. Augustine. The last observation is that in light of the heritage of his writings he leaves and the communities he set up and which sprung from his tradition, one observer writes, Augustine should be considered to be the father of a Western spirituality, a Western mysticism of a Catholic Christian type. But further, Augustine's personal fidelity to the monastic ideal, his significant achievement of a monastic legislator, the rule for men and women, his promotion of monasteries in the traditional sense, that is devoid of pastoral work, and his steady insistence on monasticizing his local clergy as the portrait of the monk bishop drawn by Pisidius shows him to be a true father of Western-style monasticism. Now, unfortunately, it's always been seen only as St. Benedict as the father of Western monks, but it's simply not true because there is a whole stream of Western monasticism which is Augustinian, okay? And, and it's very important to make that point, and it's priestly monasticism in a, in, a, in a special way. His persevering response to the monastic calling, as he conceived of it in his own terms in his daily life, is possibly the most underrated facet of his personality. Because they're always talking about his philosophy and theology, you know, and his the confessions as being a seminal work of psychology and, you know, all sorts of other things. But Augustine's work as a monastic legislator and forming a Western kind of form of monasticism is unfortunately not sufficiently discussed. St. Augustine died 50 years before St. Benedict was born. It is to his inspiration that many of the later groups of priest monks, or more correctly canons, will return for inspiration and for a rule. The Augustinian canons, or black canons, which were so ubiquitous in Europe, um, from Eastern Europe right across to Ireland, then the white canons, my own order, Norbertines or Premonstratensians, who have the rule of St. Augustine, because when St. Norbert founded us, he was really just renewing the life of priest monks after the mind of St. Augustine. So if you said, are you a founder? He'd say, no. It's, this is Augustinian canonical life, but Norbert was so had a strong personality and a Eucharistic devotion and other aspects that made our order a new order within that uh, tradition. Spread right across Europe, the canons who began at the Lateran Basilica became an order too, and they have spread as far as South America. Later then, there were the canons regular of the Holy Cross, or the Crozier Fathers. They too follow the rule of St. Augustine and are priest monks, if you like, or canons. After them came the friars preachers or Dominicans who also follow the rule of St. Augustine and likewise the Servite friars and then the Augustinian friars who began in around the same time as, as a group of friars as the Dominicans. In all, over 150 religious communities in the Catholic Church follow the rule of St. Augustine. So I think it was important to, to, to do that thing on St. Augustine. Going back a step or two, we recall that by the birth of St. Augustine in 354, overlapping the life of St. Anthony in Egypt for his first two years, simultaneous with the spread of monasticism in the East, Palestine, Syria, Mesopotamia, and Asia Minor, the ideal of the Anchorites and Cenobites began to gain a foothold in the West. Perhaps St. Athanasius, before 350, on his way into exile, introduced the first monks into the West. We may recall that St. Martin of Tours, who died in 397, was a pioneer of monastic life in Gaul. From there it moves north directly to Ireland, Wales, and the Western Isles in a very remarkable Celtic tribal form. Now I could pause and give, you could give a whole night on Celtic monasticism. Basically, the Irish church until the time of St. Malachy in the 12th century was a monastic church. The abbot was a more important figure 
in the Irish church than the bishop. And the monastery was the central place, not the cathedral. So it was kind of a very interesting church. And basically, because of Patrick's missionary genius, he didn't impose the Roman system on Ireland. He accepted the clan system. And then when monasteries came, you kind of had a monastery in every tribal area. And the church in Ireland was a monastic church. The style of Celtic monasticism is also, because it just comes straight from the east to Martin of Tours up to Ireland, it's very eastern. It's very penitential. You go the settlement at Glendalock, there were 2,000 monks in a walled monastic community with several houses of monks like Pacomius. It was a Pacomian monastery in County Wicklow. <laughs> so um, Irish monasticism, interesting. In Italy, too, a chain of monasteries was already established before the end of the 4th century. Clearly, this early monasticism in the West was broadly marked with the form and outlook of monastic life in the East. A truly Western monasticism, properly speaking, still had to be created. Although monasticism had developed by the time St. Augustine encountered it at that crucial meeting in his life, this was to stay with him throughout his life and exercise a normative influence on the subsequent development of monastic life in the West. The early monasteries in the West had access to documents such as the Rules of St. Basil and St. Jerome's Latin translation of the Rule of St. Pacomius and the two great works of John Cashin. There was also circulating an anonymous Rule of the Master and, of course, St. Augustine's Rule. A typical monastery in the West until St. Benedict's time, 480 to 547, was a small monastery of 12 monks and an abbot carrying about a round of psalmody, work and reading with a common dormitory in which the abbot's bed was in the middle open space of the room and a common refectory in which his seat was distinguished from the rest. The life of such a house must have been as simple and unadorned as the first Franciscan friaries centuries later. St. Benedict lived in and among monasteries of this type at Subiaco, near Rome, and such must have also been the primitive community at Monte Cassino, near Naples. Later history regards St. Benedict of Nursia as the patriarch of Western monasticism. With due respect to the neglected role of St. Augustine's monasticism, we could certainly say that St. Benedict was a father of Western monasticism and popularly the great father of Western monasticism. In his lifetime, he was the abbot of one of the many Italian monasteries of his day. Yet he was renowned for his sanctity and his reputation as a wonder worker for miracles. He is remembered principally for his short rule a fine synthesis, about two-thirds of it is drawn from other sources from his time. The rule of St. Benedict has, you can actually put the rule of St. Augustine in one column and the rule of St. Benedict. The rule of St. Augustine's like that much and the rule of St. Benedict's like that much. So he develops stuff. You can find parts of St. Basil in there. You can find parts of the rule of the master in there. You find scripture up and down. And Benedict wasn't a plagiarist. No one was in those days. You receive the tradition and you work on it and develop it a bit more. So, Dom David Knowles, Benedictine, gives three reasons for the popularity of St. Benedict's rule. It is eminently practical, though short. It is a workable directory for all monastic activity and every class and age of monks. Like he says, it's better if monks don't drink wine, but if they do, a pint of meal should be enough. And then he says, well, you know, meat, yes, Bipeds, not quadrupeds, you know, so they eat poultry, you know. So, uh, so he, has, he has to have a rule that Italian monks can live, you see. He's, he, he's, he's pragmatic. You've got to have a Western rule for Western monks, you know. So he, he's, he says this is just a little way. If you follow this, you'll get there. But there are those who can do more, so great. While spiritually uncompromising, it is physically moderate and flexible with emphasis on the charity and harmony of a simple life in common with no place for rivalry and the effort of individual achievement. Thirdly, it contains in a few paragraphs a fund of spiritual and human wisdom that can guide an abbot and monks in all the vicissitudes of life. As Dom David observes, Benedict's monastery is neither a penitentiary 
nor a school of monastic mountaineering, but a family of those seeking God. Now, when Benedict defines the term monk, he says it is one who lives only for God. Whereas Augustine said a monk is one who lives as one. So Benedict still has the kind of Eastern everything for God alone thing. Augustine has the, the idea of the church and, you know, on the way to God. They're not radically different, but there's a different stress there, you can see. In the very, and that's why the term monk in the West came only to apply to Benedictines and Trappists and people like that who lived only for God. And so then you have to find other terms for the priest monks. So they called them the listed ones because they were on the list of clergy of the church. Canonicus is a list, say canon, and so forth. In his rule, um, he mirrors the first line of the rule of St. Augustine. Before all things, most dear brothers, we must love God and after him our neighbor. For these are the principal commands which have been given to us. The first thing then we direct you who live in the monastery is to observe that you dwell together in unity in the house and be of one mind and one heart in God, remembering that this is the end for which you are called here. And Benedict has something very similar in, the, in his own rule. Dom David summarized the chief points of the rule of St. Benedict. The, the monarchical abbots, so the abbots in charge, no mistaking who's in charge, elected for life by his monks and himself appointing the, the officials. The general gathering of all the brethren to counsel on matters of grave common interest. And then the calling of the seniors to advise the abbot on matter of lesser importance. And the vow of stability binding the monk to lifelong residence in the monastery of his profession. So no moving around. You stay in the monastery. You enter. There was only a single self-contained, self-supporting and sufficient family. There is no suggestion of any supervision by external authority save that of the bishop in the case of a notoriously culpable abbot. No hint of association for discipline or regulation between monasteries. No instructions even to govern how to make a new foundation. Though St. Benedict made at least more than one, one or two foundations and, and, and maybe more. So we may not speak of St. Benedict founding an order as such. He's the abbot of a monastery. That monastery founds a couple of other monasteries and they just take the rule, holus bolus, to the next place and they're independent monasteries. However, his rule was abroad and copied in various places. Charlemagne, the Holy Roman Emperor, 742 to 814, valued unity very much in his dominions. So Benedict's rule is also associated with the so-called Carolingian Renaissance, the revival of art, religion, and culture through the medium of the Catholic Church. Through his foreign conquests and internal reforms, Charlemagne helped define both Western Europe and the Middle Ages. He sent to the Abbey of Monte Cassino for an authentic copy of the rule of St. Benedict, and then he imposed it on all the monks of the Carolingian Empire. And so they went mad copying the rule of St. Benedict out and it was taken to every monastery. They said, the emperor said, this is what, he got, what you've got to follow from now on. Um, this plan was carried out by his son, Louis the Pious, who died in 840. He arranged a meeting of all the abbots of the empire to meet at Aachen over the summers of 816, 817, 818, presided over by another Benedict, remembered as St. Benedict of Agnane. The Council of Abbots created a code of regulations or Codex Regularum, which would be binding on all their houses. Soon after, he compiled a Concordia Regularum, a commentary on the rule of St. Benedict. Although these new codes fell into disuse shortly after the death of Vagnane and his patron, Emperor Louis the Pious, they had lasting effects on Western monasticism. Later reformers, such as Saints Dunstan and Ethelwald in England, modeled their proceedings on the decrees of Aachen. From the reforms of Aachen and the work of St. Benedict of Agnane, the term monasticus ordo emerges, or the word ordo signifying an ordered way of life, became increasingly seen as the household of St. Benedict. So where there was an ordo monastery, it was part of the house of St. Benedict, or familia sancti benedicti, the family of St. Benedict, would soon be the Ordo Sancti Benedicti. But it was still a long way from being a religious order as we know it. The Abbey of Cluny 
this is a very important development in Western monasticism. In the year 909, William Count of Aquitaine, um, in the shallow valley of fertile land southwest of Dijon, gave an abbey to a group of Benedictine monks, but he didn't give it to them. What he did was he gave it to the Holy See. So he said, I am giving this monastery to St. Peter and St. Paul. Well, I mean, who represents St. Peter and St. Paul? The Pope. So it was out of the control of any knight or any king or any bishop even. And so it was a very clever move on the part of William Count of Aquitaine to give this monastery to the Holy See or to St. Peter and St. Paul. Saintly abbots over a hundred years established the reputation of the house as fervent and exemplary. They were called in by nobles, bishops and monks to guide and reform other houses. Cluny was becoming the mother of a large family. St. Odilo became abbot in 994 and ruled for 50 years. He was followed by St. Hugh, St. Hugh who became abbot in 1049 in his 20s and he ruled for 60 years. During the reigns of these two abbots, the number of Cluniac houses grew to perhaps 2,000 monasteries. The key principle was that the abbot of Cluny was the immediate superior to all the monks of all the houses. All the novices made profession to him, even if he wasn't there. And he appointed all superiors in those 2,000 monasteries. So two ideas were conflated in this system. The rule of the abbot over his monks and the dominion over, of a king over his tenants-in-chief, his vassals. So it's a kind of perfect form of medieval monasticism. In theory, every member of every house was a member of the community of Cluny and a subject of the abbot of Cluny. The relationship of the houses was vertical dependence, not horizontal equality. Because remember, Benedict just found monasteries. They were equal. But the Cluny system had Mother Cluny and then the rest uh, under Cluny. Cluny had, in a sense, stumbled into empire, as one writer says. However, its very size made it difficult to function, for obedience to an abbot one never sees was unreal, and the feudal relationship of one monastery to a greater was also somewhat fictional. The reasons why Cluny worked as long as it did was that it had become the spiritual center of Europe when the papacy was embroiled in problems all its own. And so at the bad period of the papacy, there's this marvelous monastery of Cluny, center of learning, you know, the abbot of Cluny sending out educated monks all around to govern, you know, well-formed communities. The cream of the candidates from the various houses came to Cluny and there thrived a great monastery which was able to send men out in leadership to other houses Roughly speaking, Cluny was ruled for just on two centuries, basically by four abbots, men of outstanding ability, wisdom, and piety. As Dom David observes, it is a record to which it would be hard to find a rival in any series of rulers, clerical or lay, in European history. Four guys, basically, over 200 years, who were saints. Each one of them was a canonized saint. We ought to note that the influence of Cluny on the papacy itself when the reforming popes arose, they were friends and protectors of Cluny with more than one Cluniac monk in their ranks. In fact, popes St. Gregory VII, Paschal II, Urban II and Urban V were all monks of Cluny, or of a Cluniac monastery. So there's a monastery reforming the church, almost. I could mention the Camaldolese and the Carthusians, who are other forms of very strict Western monks, but therefore your delight to, to look it up and read at some other time. I must just say something about the Cistercians, or the, uh, then later a reform of them becomes the Trappists. Cistercian comes from Cito, the monastery found, where they were founded, and La Trappe becomes the monastery, Trappist, where the reform came. David Knowles observes that the rule of St. Benedict to become submerged a bit under customs, some legitimate, others modifications tending to laxity. Nobody was sure what exactly was able to sort it all out. There was no external machinery to assist any monastery to maintain or recreate a proper standard of observance. The size of Cluny caused it not to be able to meet the new spirit of the times, which looked for greater simplicity on austerity and a framework to maintain it. 
This was to be the genius of the monks of Citeaux. Unnoticed in the woodlands of Burgundy, so they didn't have to give the monastery to Peter and Paul because no one wanted it in the sand patch it was. So no, they, they were safe there. Um, a group of monks made a fresh start with the principle to observe the rule of St. Benedict to the last dot. The first two abbots of Citeaux, Aubrey or Alberic and Stephen, between them governed from 1099 to 1134, firmed up the internal life of the monastery and they added machinery that would enable new foundations to have proper relationships between houses. They were concerned that they not go the way of previous reforms. In a document, 1,600 words long, the Carta Caritatis, or Charter of Charity, we have a masterpiece of clarity and brevity. It was approved by Pope Callistus II in 1119. New houses, unlike Cluny, would not be just a dependent cell in that vertical relationship. All should be observed as at sito, and all customs and books of the houses should be identical. So identical houses with the same books performed in various places. The abbots of the houses began to meet on a fixed day for the chapter meeting at Sito. Sounds a bit like Pacomius calling them all together, doesn't it? They were to meet at Sito, where faults in discipline and administration were corrected by each other, and the general chapter, that was all the abbots coming together, became the supreme authority in the order. The relationship of surveillance and visitation existing between the abbot of Sito and his daughter abbeys was applied to every founding abbot and his daughter houses. Finally, the business of elections within the order was regulated. Thus, the general chapter becomes a sovereign body. The clauses of the Carta Caritatis were not impositions of ancient practices. They were devised to meet the situations that arose. Yearly inspection or visitation to secure the observance of the uniform code and the yearly general chapter for council legislation and judgment were found to be simple and effective measures that could hold together a wide scattered family of hundreds as successfully as it held together a group of half a dozen. Here for the first time in Europe was a religious order. You know the whole order comes together for chapter and so on. A friend of St. Bernard, who becomes the next generation of Cistercians, was St. Norbert. And so when our order was founded, they adopted the Carta Caritatis for government. And so we had general chapters and inspections and visitations and check-up as well. The last part of the development would be, and I know I'm over time, is the Friars Minor, the Franciscans. And I think I'll go on to that. Yes, good. The prolific growth of the Cistercians and the fame of St. Bernard, Abbot of Clairvaux, in his literary and preaching activity, in the year 1153, 19 years after the death of St. Stephen of Citeaux, there were 330 Cistercian abbeys. There were still Cluniac monasteries, abbeys of canons regular following the rule of St. Augustine, and the military orders, soldier monks, and unreformed Benedictines still around. One-third of developed or exploitable land was in the hands of the church in one form or other with all these vast number of monasteries and the cathedrals and so on. The sowing of the seeds of restlessness and resentment and greed was coming from all sorts of quarters. Not all who joined the orders were zealous. Orders were receiving income from sources not permitted by their rule. They all tended to work out of the age of the feudal and agrarian society, but meanwhile a new urban working class merchant society was growing up and away from the influence of the monks and the canons in these rising cities. A new kind of lay piety was arising. It was fervent, non-clerical, it distrusted sacramentalism, insisted on reading scripture in the vernacular languages. These people wanted to preach and hear sermons. They liked coming together for meetings and prayer and the organization sometimes of charitable works. Some drifted into heresy, a heresy arrested by the friars. So that's their great work, the Franciscans and Dominicans. Um, but it would return with vengeance at the Protestant revolt. The friars will emerge as a force to assist the urban people with living the devout life. Friars comes from fratres, brothers. They would live a cenobitic life, so a community life in poverty, but they would emphasize moral exhortation, preaching, 
They would study the life of Christ rather than the liturgy. The friars would preach and beg and invite laity to form a third or penitential order in the world. So you had Franciscan laity or third order Franciscans, Dominican laity, Carmelite laity, and even the old orders took it on, Norbertine laity, Benedictine laity. But you had these lay movements that were within the church. St. Francis did not so much want to found a new order, but he wanted to cut loose from the traditions of the existing orders. While those who had undertaken studies in his time taught and wrote from octoritas, that is from the authority approved writers, as we said, they'd make a new synthesis, Francis didn't have that sort of education and was not interested in it. He was an outsider to the world of clerks and curialists and canonists, but he was not a rebel and he was not an anarchist. His originality came from direct experience of Christ in his sacred humanity and above all in his passion. Francis knew our Lord. He was called to follow not a way of life, but a person who had direct claim upon everyone in the world, according to Francis. Once he heard this call himself, Francis was constrained to make it heard by others. He had no desire to found a monastery or even a community. He just wanted to share simple gospel visions of life with any brother who joined him. Yet it was not just Jesus and Francis, because Francis had a very strong sense of the Holy Church as the extension of Christ himself. And so Pope Innocent III saw that vision of little brother Francis and the great church tottering in Rome and little brother Francis holding the whole church up on his shoulder. Pope Innocent III, in 1209, approves a short rule for St. Francis. He went to Rome with a dozen followers and brought his little rule and said, can we have approval? And the previous night, Pope Innocent had had this dream. And he goes, you're the one in the dream. It was, in its original form, a few key passages from the Gospels joined together by a short explanation. Very nice. Is it going to run an order, though? His ideal was that of a small local group loosely bound together by mutual charity and a common vocation. He had no pretensions to leadership and he left each friar to receive any brother who wanted to live simplicity, poverty, preaching and mutual association. So everybody was kind of like an abbot. I mean, in the sense that they could receive anyone, any friar could receive anyone in. In 1219, as divisions arose, Francis took off to the east, to the Holy Land, where he spoke to a sultan and all that sort of thing, tried converting the Muslims and what have you, and he didn't announce any date of return. It was necessary for the papacy to move in and require some structure, such as one year as a novice before you make vows. You have to take formal profession of vows to someone who is known as a finally professed member of the order. And there has to be some control of these people. So you've got to have some sort of governance. On his return, there was a more general demand for a rule which Francis resisted at every stage. The free, homeless, penniless life on the roads and hermitages was coming to an end. He wrote a first rule in 1221, but there was much dissatisfaction with it. He wrote another edition two years later, which was approved by Pope Honorius III in 1223. When it became binding, the lesser friars, as Francis called them, so that's why the friars minor, the little brothers, um, the lesser friars became a religious order once the final rule was approved and everyone who claimed to be with Francis, you've got to follow that rule from now on, said the Pope. They were a family of indifferent size, not a community of monasteries or, or, or um, of a monastery or monasteries. Even when they grew, there was one head, Brother Francis, who was the superior general or what he called the minister general, the super servant. And to this day, the head of the Franciscan order is not the superior general, he is the minister general. And every superior in the Franciscan order is called a minister. The provincial is strictly called the minister provincial. So the idea of servant provincial, servant general. There were others who assisted called ministers. The friaries were finally divided into provinces, but not separated as the abbeys were independent. So again, we have a new order with a superior general, minister general, 
and provinces with their minister provincials. And the Dominicans will become like this also. The Dominicans are very interesting because they have the influence of Francis who knew Dominic. But they also come out of the tradition of the canons following the rule of St. Augustine. And so where Francis ministers to the urban poor, the Dominicans get involved in the rising universities. And then you get Thomas Aquinas. The last thing was on the Jesuits, but I won't mention them. Um, <laughs> the main thing about the Jesuits is they basically shed much of the traditional monastic and conventual life and liturgical prayer. For example, they said that the choral office is relinquished with uh, the wish to abandon the chant and music of all kinds so that they would be complete free agents to go to do emergency work wherever it was needed. Ignatius basically wanted to found a little company like Green Berets of the church. And when the Pope said go, they went. And they took a fourth vow of direct obedience to the Pope. They grew. See, Ignatius wanted to do all that could be done urgently for the, for the opening up of the new world and the Protestant revolt and, and have emergency services going but they became an empire within the church. And that's where problems come in. So, that's enough for now. <laughs> Thank you, Father. Are the monasteries in Glendalough still active? Nothing. There's just ruins there. Just ruins. Um, it had some very famous people. One of the greatest abbots of Glendalough became Archbishop of Dublin, St. Lawrence O'Toole. And um, he's another fascinating character to, to look up. But no, there's only just ruins there, but very beautiful ruins. Uh, the last lecture you talked about uh, those, the, the great number of monasteries in the Middle East. Right. So they've disappeared. Uh, there's there's many, many still around, like Little Cells and Cenobites. And, you know, I, I believe there's a BBC documentary of some English guy who was an atheist who went to stay with one of these eremitical monks thinking he was a crackpot, you know. And he stayed there with this guy. And after 20 days or something, you know, the guy was in tears and, and, and you know, wanted to become a Christian. But, but it's Witnessing but, the life, you know. But there definitely was a decline in... Oh, yeah, well, because, because of the, well, simply, in some ways, because of the spread of Islam, the, many were wiped out, martyred well, even. And my, my question really was, was that decline due to the monks or to the laity? And, and today, is there a decline in monasticism? And is it due to the monks or to the laity? Uh, well, <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it's hard when you think of that period. So historically, there's great movements of people and um, armies and, and so on. And so a lot of the, that life is gone. But there are still like the monastery of St. Catherine on Sinai. And, you know, then there are, there are cells of monks. And, but it's not the number it once was, which would be various empires that have descended on the, the territory. And, and so politics and history has sort of seen that change. Um, in the monasteries of the Western world, it tends to be the monasteries who have, who have maintained more observance, so that have kept you know, the full singing of the Psalms, that wear the religious habit, that the life of prayer and work is balanced. These tend to be getting vocations. But some very secularized monasteries where everybody went out and got you know, four degrees and you know, became prominent publicly and stuff like that have tended to decrease with, uh, you know, growing secularism. But the monasteries that have been more observant have, seem to have the vocations. And you see that among women religious too. One group of women religious that I know very well are the Nashville Dominican sisters, who 30 years ago, the prioress general said, the habit is a non-negotiable because we've been wearing this Dominican habit for 700 and whatever years. The common prayer, you know, the, the divine office, which we prayed, which we, you know, chant together, you know, has been since the beginning. Weekend for active Dominican sisters was where we live more of the religious life than we can during the school week. So weekend is not sunbaking time. It's, it's um, you know, time for more observance. And we live in community. We don't have sister living out in a home unit somewhere or, you know, condo.
you know, we live in communities. And so about over a period of, I think, 18 months, about 35 sisters left. And, you know, she was mother intransigence and, you know, she wouldn't move and get up with the times and all the rest. And she suffered a lot of ridicule, especially from priests who very often don't know anything about religious life because they're not religious. They're diocesan priests. And, and you don't expect that they would know much about religious life. And so they're just looking for sisters to run the school in those days. And so she suffered a lot of grief from a lot of people, but then girls started to enter again and enter and enter and enter and they get between 18 and 20 girls a year. Now, they have opened up, I mean, they're, they're all over the place. There's some in Arlington Diocese, I believe, and, and, and um, you know, so far south as uh, New Orleans and um, Denver, and I mean, and they're just little Nashville Dominicans. But because they live the life and have maintained the religious life, their numbers have increased. So there is, I think, fidelity to these basic patterns seems to always bear fruit. And some of the new groups that have appeared, like the, the, there's a the French group that are here now in the States, have three monasteries and they do a lot of retreats and things with young people, but they, they will introduce them to the Sung Divine Office and things like that. They've got, they've got a, a young guy from Christendom who graduated the year before last is joining them this year. Now, you know, that, that's a life of serious prayer and, you know, study and apostolate, you know, and, and um, running retreats and things. But the monastic basis is there. And that's what that seems to be. This generation, you know, I'm, I'm a baby boomer. I mean, you know, we're a crazy generation. You know, the, six, the 60s and, you yeah. know. Um, I used to have hair to my shoulders. And now I'm embarrassed looking at the photographs, you know. <laughs> Bell-bottom trousers and... Uh, but we thought we were great, you know, and we were stupid. These kids are not in rebellion as we were. They're looking for identity, solidity. They want something that didn't start yesterday. They, they want something. I think that even that movie Roots started that, that, that genera- the younger generation starting to look for heritage and roots. And, you know, we just didn't come out of the sky and be gone tomorrow. Now, as long as they can kind of get the moral thing too, because that tests it. The proof of the pudding's in the eating. Thank you for a wonderful series, Father. Would you mind uh, concluding in prayer for us? God, our Father, we ask you to continue to strengthen us in your church. Make us real members of your mystical body. Help us to be interested to spread the, the reign of Christ in this world by everything that we can do, by act and deed and word and prayer and all the ways of our lives. May your blessed Mother also be our inspiration, our refuge, our strength. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. And may the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come upon you and be with you forever. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.